If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery. Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to episode 227 of What Most People Think and if you're new to this podcast it is generally a weekly, uh, sometimes more than once weekly topical comedy podcast where we have guests from left to right to talk about big political and cultural issues to sometimes come at it in a way that comedy doesn't but sometimes I just meet somebody through the course of my work I think oh I'd love to get him on and I worked with Perry Groves a former Arsenal player years ago and I thought look I've spoke about 90s football nostalgia on this show quite a lot and just generally becoming an old fart and thinking that that was the best era ever of football so why not test out that theory with um, somebody actually played during that time so I spoke to Perry earlier just such a funny intelligent and insightful bloke and I hope you'll enjoy this chat I would say that it's not very specifically football it's about the culture of football and, and the drinking culture and where you know how the game's changed in terms of whether or not it's become virtue signaling and all that kind of thing but of course we'll have a catch up on some of the biggest stories politically of the last seven days, including uh, James Cleverly accused of calling Stockton a shithole. I mean, it was interesting straight away they had people in, uh, like reporters in Stockton asking people, like, have you heard what James Cleverly have said? Is it a shithole? And it was quite sort of surprising to me that not a lot of them actually said that it wasn't a shithole. <laughs> They just sort of more said, well, he shouldn't have said it, like, you know, and they're going, well, you know, was it unfair? They go, look, we've got our problems, you know what I mean? We've got, (laughs) I thought, well, that is incredibly honest. But I toured in Stockton and look, I didn't see much of the town, but it was a good place to do a show. And we've, of course, had more revelations at the COVID inquiry. And I'll try to bring you some of the revelations that aren't just about people keeping diaries where they call each other twat bungles or dick splats or, you know, creative swear words that the media seem to be lapping up. But uh, we're going to rattle through it a bit quickly this week, so I want to make as much time as possible for the chat with Perry. So new patrons, uh, we've got a new VIP, Graham Reed. You sound like a tailor's in a small town. Tailor's that's been there years, like my dad went there, my granddad went there, my great-granddad went there, and we've all been touched up by the same bloke in the course of having our inside leg measured. David Domain is our super patron. He's been with us right since the start, and he has a section called Domain Talking Point where he picks up on bits from last week's show. And he said, we were talking about UK prime ministers who've served more than one term non-consecutively. I think that that might be as a consequence of David Cameron being back in and whether or not Dave will eventually sidle up to the steering wheel and go, oh, don't worry about that, Rishi, I'll just steer for now. You just, you have a little sleep in the back seat there, little man. You're looking very tired. Oh, isn't he, isn't he ratty? Have a little sleep, Rishi. And 
Daddy Dave will take over. So Daddy David Domain says that we have had Harold Wilson, who was Prime Minister from 64 to 70, then from 1974 to 1976. So, yeah, his first spell went a lot better than his second... I seem to, well, I don't recall, but I know it's similar with football matches, isn't it? You just, every time they go back, I mean, he's had a bit of a Kevin Keegan at Newcastle there. Speaking of which, Winston Churchill, 1940 to 1945, and then 1951 to 1955. So he managed four years. Apparently, I was listening to a podcast earlier that he had eight strokes and he lived till he was 90. I mean, the geezer like fought in like wars. Prime Minister during the Second World War drank like a pint of champagne every fucking morning. Basically, absolute all-time ledge. I mean, speaking of Perry Groves about the Arsenal drinking culture, I think Winston Churchill would have fitted in nicely at the Tuesday Club. And William Lamb, twice in the 1830s. There's something about Prime Ministers in the 1800s. You know, yeah, you know, William Pitt the Small or whatever. I don't give a shit, okay? I only get out of bed for anything from a Lloyd George onwards. Okay, we're going to do a thank you and a fuck you. I want to say thank you to... Well, first up, let's dial back a bit. I was in Belfast last Friday. Always great to be in Belfast. I was there the day after what happened in Dublin happened, the riot there. I think, yeah, I mean, it was a riot, wasn't it? It was a full-scale thing, serious public disorder. And it was quite fun to open the show by asking the crowd in Belfast whether they were feeling a bit smug, looking down the road, going, oh, what's... Come on, for fuck's sake. Setting fire to stuff, rioting. Jesus, you're better than that. So because I had the Saturday free, I then went to a trance daytime event and I know people you mock me for still doing that at my age but I don't like elbow do you know what I mean or cult. I like you too but there's seem the fucking just grown roots in Vegas now so if the music you like is electronic dance music the place you have to hear it you know witness it is in a nightclub and John Askew uh, was doing his night there and I, I got to talk to John and I think I might have fanboyed on him a bit hard my wife took a photo of me speaking to him at the back of the DJ booth and I swear to god it looked like it looked like I was trying to eat his ear I mean however long he's DJed for in his incredible career it would be a real shame if he finally lost his hearing just cuz one punter was fucking screaming <laughs> screaming into his ear telling him what a legend he was but look, just like I've got Perry Groves on today, I'm going to get John on the podcast at some point in the new year because I want him to explain to you why people going my age, going to daytime trance events, isn't that weird. The fuck you is to the woman on the flight I was on going to Belfast. Did I mention what a great crowd were in Belfast? Honestly, really good night. Um, but on the way out, it was a full flight. Uh, we are operating a full flight today. There's a woman on the flight and I got to my row 14E and the woman had a bag on my seat. I said, oh, excuse me, that's my seat. And she tutted. She fucking tutted. I was like, you can't tut like that. This isn't a train. It's not like you can like try and hold out for a while like people do on trains and go, oh, you know, I might get away with keeping the seats bare. That is my seat on a full flight. There's no other seat. And I just sat down. I thought I might just manspread now. I might do all the man stuff. If she's going to be like that, I'm going to manspread I'm going to mansplain to her. I'm going to do all the worst stuff that men do with women in public. Well, not the worst stuff, but she just seemed like really cross. I know you're not allowed to say it anymore, but you just, you know, I could smile, love, it might never happen, you know. But no, what did I really do? I just sat there and internalised it and then was even more polite when I asked to step across her because I was going to the toilet because actually I was a bit scared of her. What most people think. Okay, we will be talking to Perry Groves very shortly, but first up, let's have a catch up on a couple of big political stories from the last seven days. What most people think. 
All right, so we had this gaffe or this moment where James Cleverly was in the Commons. I can't remember if it was PMQs or something else, but there was a row about a word picked up, right? Labour MPs said that James Cleverly said that the reason that there was more poverty in Stockton was because it was a shit all right? So when you watch the clip back, you can't see him in vision, but you certainly hear what seems to be his voice. You clearly hear the word shit, and I guess contextually, I mean, this is where you can't actually talk about this story without actually being insulting to the people of Stockton, but contextually, there's a, a strong possibility that he might have said shithole, right? Some Labour people said that they definitely heard him say that, right? So his office are forced to come out. I mean, bear in mind, this geezer's only been like Home Secretary for about a week. So Rishi Sunak must have been going, fuck my life. But then he, James Cleverley's office come out and said that he actually said that it's because they've got a shit MP. So I suppose on the balance of probability, a lot of people said that seemed way less likely. Again, insulting Stockton than saying it was a shithole. Maybe we're the problem, actually. Maybe we're the problem. Because I know that James Cleverley has done campaigning in Stockton. So he claims that he loves the place. And you're like, all right, don't overdo it, mate. Because when he stood up in the Commons, he got recalled to the Commons to actually answer directly to the MP that accused him. And obviously he said, I didn't say it, I wouldn't say it, and he was quite unequivocal in his denial. And then he started saying, Stockton's like a brilliant place. And I think at that point, even the people of Stockton were going, all right, mate, don't fucking overdo it, you know, don't, don't fucking patronise us on top of all that. Uh, I don't know whether that was close to being a Stockton accent. But it was interesting, well... A lot of press outlets basically led with the idea that he definitely said it. It was, you know, I know that it seemed generally that people felt the balance of probability that he did say it. But when there's a denial in play and there's not unequivocal proofs, it was surprising to see how definitive some press outlets were. Well, look, whether James Cleverly said it was a shithole or called the MP a shit MP, it does feed into this idea of the Tories subconsciously self-destructing, right? Because he's just got the job. And one, I suppose... One of the things about having Cleverly instead of Braverman is that the sort of mainstream press, you might hope for a better time of it when he's a bit more likeable, he's a bit more genial. You know, he's already done a, a shoot with The Times, he's done a big interview with them and he's smiling and he's wearing his groovy red stocks. Then he has to get recalled to the Commons and it's pretty bad news for the Tories who are desperately trying to hold on to whatever red wall votes that they might have got. Obviously, they didn't get them there because the MP was clearly still Labour. And let's be honest, it's not like Labour MPs haven't recently called Tory MPs scum. And some people might go, yeah, but that's fine because it's true. You know, in the left do their little double standards thing. Like, you know, people should never attack people in public unless it's Nigel Farage and you put a milkshake on his head. You know, that's just ironic. That's ironic. It's okay when we do it because ours is coming from a good place. And the thing is... Labour, they want to wage their whole political campaign on stuff like this, don't they? Because all of their best moments in the last few years have been when they've essentially been rebuking the government, whether it was over Partygate or the chaos following the autumn statement last year. Those are kind of the only times that Starmer looked really confident at the dispatch box. Oh, you've been very naughty. You've been very naughty. Naughty, naughty, naughty. Naughty step for you. Because that is his job, isn't it? It's a QC while he's making a case for what someone's done wrong. That is who he is. It's kind of unfortunate for both sides, really, or certainly for good democracy, because the Tories just can't seem to get out of this quagmire of, of stepping in dog shit. And for Labour, we really need them to start talking about what their policies might be, because we could be six months away from a general election and there's no standout policies, you know? I mean, the one we did have was that Labour were going to spend £28 billion on green initiatives. That's gone. All of Starmer's original pledges... 
have gone. And the reason that they're saying that is like, well, we don't know what a mess the public finances are going to be in. Are they going to sort of like tiptoe all the way to the election based on the idea that they don't know exactly what state the finance is going to be in? Because I would say that that has been true of any government coming in until you get to the keys to the Treasury. You know, but people still tend to write manifestos. You know, it's got to be this increased tax burden. And this is where people on the left sometimes run aground because they want to hammer the Tories for the fact that the tax burden is at one of its highest points in our history. But they also, the people saying that also tend to be the people that want to spend a lot on public services and probably would tax more themselves. You know, you can't have all the fun of lacerating the government because they fucked the public finances in the autumn statement and then sort of basically advocate for policies which would do exactly the same thing. Also, people just forget COVID costs half a trillion quid. And the thing that cost the money was the thing that those people tended to advocate for. The same people who loved, loved a bit of lockdown and furlough. But lockdown and furlough does sound like a garage act from the late 90s, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a lockdown and furlough. <laughs> Going back to back with oxide and neutrino. What most people think. Just one more thing before we get to the chat with Perry is just a bit of an update from the COVID inquiry. So we had uh, the big three science guys. What was it? Witty, Van Tam and Valance. Valance? No, Valance. Is he related to Holly Valance? Or is he related to a duvet? So the three big science guys, they're like the beastie boys of science. And it transpired that I think it was Patrick Valance. He kept a private diary. Really? Was it private? Then how the fuck did we find out about it? Would be my question. I never intended for this to be read by anybody. Well, really, what in, in the inquiry of... It wasn't me, Gov, COVID inquiry, where every single person testifying there is basically trying to say that they said and advocated for all the right things and other people were the dickheads. So, yeah, this private diary didn't want anybody to ever see, just somehow, you know, it's known about and everyone is seeing it. Look, if we're going to be cynical and say that James Cleverly definitely said something, even though he denies it, I'm going to be really cynical and say that Patrick Valance had some idea that this might get into the public domain. Now, what the press focused on, surprise, surprise, was his frustration at getting the Prime Minister to understand stuff so that uh, Boris Johnson didn't understand the difference between absolute and relative risk and all, there were all sorts of scientific things that were a bit, you know, went over his head. People jumped on this, right, because there's a group of people that all they ever really want to do is tell you what a mistake it was to vote for Boris Johnson. They've now forgotten the bit where the alternative was Jeremy fucking Corbyn. So the press tended to lead on this idea that the Prime Minister was really stupid and this was part of the reason that Britain was, I don't know, the worst in the world and, you know, it was behind all the clever people, you know, obviously because in Germany and France and Italy, it was, it was all going absolutely fine. We were the only ones having a shitstorm. But there was another bit of his testimony which got reported on less where Patrick Valance was sharing a story where he was on a Zoom call with loads of scientific advisors from all over the world and one of them was talking about how they couldn't get their world leader to understand something to do with curves. And everybody on the Zoom call laughed. And as Patrick Valance said himself, it's because they were all going through the same thing. Because guess what? Political leaders are not fucking science people, right? So all of a sudden they had to understand this stuff, which let's be honest, some of it was a bit conceptual. So we've got this idea, you know, there's a certain kind of person in this country that always idealises European countries. We're, the, uh, Emmanuel R Macron was just sitting there, you know, we had the fucking uh, goggles and the test tubes out and that, that Merkel was herself just working on a little couple, couple of tweaks to, to the vaccine, you know, because all, all the other leaders are just more involved than us and they had this slick machine. I don't know, are there any inquiries going on in other countries at the moment? Probably, I'd imagine. Well, you wouldn't know, would you? Even though... 
the overall excess deaths tally for the UK put it broadly in line with similar European countries. There is still this idea that the failings along the way mean that the way that we responded was a failure. And that's what it worries me about the focus of this inquiry, because that is genuinely not... It's supposed to individually ascertain how well different things work. But really, for a lot of people, this inquiry is just the was Boris shit inquiry. <laughs> Man, could we just give them a separate inquiry for that? Because I think it would be much more clear. Was he chaotic? Did he change his mind a lot? Yes, 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 yes. Fine, there you go. Bang, you know, you can have your moment. And meanwhile, could the grown-ups over here, can we have an inquiry about how the government public health bodies and the civil service and the NHS responded to the pandemic, please. Okay, got that off my chest. Now let's chat to the football legend that is Perry Grove. So I am delighted to welcome to the show former Arsenal Southampton and let's not forget Colchester United legend Perry Groves. Jeff, how's it going? Can we not say Southampton, if you don't mind? I apologise to all Southampton fans every time I see them because <laughs> I was a complete waste of money. They bought me for 750 grand yeah, and I scored two goals, so it's 375 grand a goal, which I thought was quite good value, to be fair. Yeah, in, the, in this day and age, mate, people would see that as an absolute bargain. Yeah, and I snapped my Achilles tendon after like 13 games. I packed in here for injury, so fans see you as value for money or a waste of money. There's no in-between. So I'm a waste of money, but my solace is that Kerry Dixon and David Speedy were far worse than me. So they make me feel better. <laughs> you mentioned good players there. I mean, immediately we get into that territory, which is one of the reasons I was so delighted to have you on the show, is that there is this big market for 90s football nostalgia now. I don't know how much you follow it yourself, but there's a lot of Twitter accounts of Stu's 90s football and and stuff. And I was just wondering, you know, is it guys like my age who sit up late at night on YouTube watching old 90s football? Are we just sort of become old farts that are lost in the nostalgia? Or was there something about that era that was actually really stands out against modern football? I don't want to say this, you're getting old. I think it's just age. I think everybody looks back on the times when they were younger and they all think that that was the best time for football. Because obviously I'm of a certain vintage now, I'm like 58. I look back on like the 70s and early 80s and I see especially the 70s of the World Cup where we didn't mm. see any foreign players at all unless you watched the World Cup. And then you had like colour streams coming through. The World Cups and those players seem very, very exotic. Yeah, yeah. So I think each generation sees their time as more exotic than the other one. But I think the thing, you know, the 90s was it, it did have that change. There was that moment in time where the premiership come in. There was a bit more money and sort of bought it out. Not the doldrums as such, but it just added a bit more colour and pizzazz. And then we had the advent of the overseas player where at first, you know, it was this, as you say, exotic's a great word, where every club had their overseas guy, you know, whether it was Ginola at Newcastle or Klinsman at Spurs or Leonardson down at Wimbledon and it didn't take long before Chelsea were putting out a whole team of overseas players and it felt like that felt like a different thing but I just wonder if you were going to make an argument for the 90s it was that almost that point between the super wealth of now and the kind of perhaps more greyer mundane image that football had in the 80s yeah well I think what happens well you're talking about the 90s the advent of Sky coming in and obviously what you said there about more football on television Normally you had match of the day and you had like match mm. of the week on a Saturday night and a Sunday afternoon. And all of a sudden, I think what happened in the 90s was people who followed football would have known who 
played for Arsenal, who played for Chelsea, who played for Liverpool. In the same way, you didn't necessarily have to follow football to know who the football stars were in the 90s. And I think that was the first advent of them becoming more like multimedia stars, more like pop stars, you know what I mean? More like film stars, because football became trendy. Everybody got into mm. football. And you mentioned about the foreign players. I can remember Franz, Tyson, Arnold, Murin playing for Ipswich in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. Like 78, and they obviously they won the FA Cup and then it won the UEFA Cup. But that was very, very unusual. But as you said, all of a sudden when the money came into the Premier League, because at that time, all of the money really was in Serie A. And the players were going to Italy for the money and that was very cosmopolitan, wasn't it? Watching it on Channel Four. Oh, mate, James Richardson with Corriere. De- what was the what was the name of that newspaper that he always used? Corriere de Sporta. I used to feel like very bohemian when he'd be sitting there having an espresso, and I'd be sitting there having a Mellow Birds coffee, and I was I'm with you, James. I'd have a copy of like a tabloid newspaper in front of me, and you forget the Italian football. I mean, after the, the 1990 World Cup, English players went to Italy. That was quite rare at that time. Yeah, well, you mentioned that the English players, obviously David Platt went, didn't he? Uh, Sampdoria, and obviously the thing that made it even more interesting for us, obviously because of Gaza. Yeah. Because at a time, uh, obviously he got his knee injury in the FA Cup fight, but Gaza was probably in the top three best players in the world. And it's a really weird thing. Again, I think because there was a period of time where English clubs were banned from Europe, so when we won the title with Arsenal in like 88-89, we complained the old European Cup. Mm. So I think football fans in general were starved of like foreign players, even your teams playing against foreign teams. It didn't happen. And then when we started playing against uh, foreign teams in pre we saw them like they were Martians. We played <laughs> against AC Milan with Maldini, Ruud Hullet, Rijkaard, up front Van Basten. We played them at Wembley and they come running out and they seemed like... They were avatars. They seemed like they were like eight for eight. Yeah, so yeah. We, we put them on a pedestal sort of thing because you'd heard all different stuff about how they train, their training regimes. There wasn't a drinking culture. So automatically we thought, well, they're miles fit than us. Well, I guess, yeah, that, that is before the sort of grilled chicken and pasta era that Wenger brought into Arsenal, which is how I, how I remember it. And like you say, there was the um, drinking culture as well. And, you know, the drinking culture, obviously there's a lot of revisionism going on about that. But one of the things it did add up to was a feeling that the fans had a lot more in common with the players. Like the players were earning good money in top flight, but nothing like now. So there was a chance back then that the players that you saw on the pitch might even go to the same restaurant. As you, you know, none of them were going Nobu. Do you know what I mean? Like back then, they, there's a chance that they might drink in the same pubs you and have like a fairly similar life to you. Did do you feel like your generation of players maybe had more of a bond with the fans than modern players do? Yeah, I think what it was, I think it was because we were just like working class boys. You know what I mean? Who we were pretty good at football, and went out, and then as you said, there we had the infamous sort of Tuesday club where only if we won on Saturday we'd be all out on the Tuesday. You know, train at Highbury, go yeah. out, and. No one booked us, like as you said there, top class, you know, mixing starred restaurants or no one booked us private members clubs because we just went, where are we going? Oh, we'll go up the Orwin Castle or we'll go to the Gunners, but we'll just go to a random pub and then fans would come up and they could have a chat. And the thing that we did, we only went out if we won because we didn't think it was fair that if you lost or drew, then it gave the impression to the fans that you didn't care. So when you went out and you'd won on the Saturday, all the fans wanted to like, have a pint, have a chat, so I think there was more of a connection. As I said, we were we were footballers. 
the nineties then started to come in to the multi media sort of superstars, you know, sort of to mid mm. to end of nineties. Where let's be honest, it was Sky. The money changed completely when Sky came in. Yeah, when Arsene Wenger came into Arsenal in ninety six. And that all the players, especially from my era, like Lee Dixon, Steve Bold, Nigel Winterburn, Tony Evans, they said how much they loved Arsene, which he was a brilliant coach. And he changed mm. football in this country. But he put them on treble their money. So as soon as he came in, <laughs> you're going to love a boss that goes, oh, I've just had a look at your contract. You ain't getting paid too much. I'm going to triple it. So all of a sudden, yeah, yeah. you're going to love the manager. I'd eat grilled chicken for treble the money. Would you chew it 36 times, though, Jeff? <laughs> well, yeah. All right, you'd have to find some baby. As long as I could have some Tabasco sauce with it. You you guys were out drinking in sort of regular pubs. Like, Does it ever occur to you, your generation, of what might have happened if there'd been camera phones then? Jail. Jail would have occurred, without a shadow of a doubt. <laughs> but that's the, the thing as well, is there wasn't the social media. You know what I mean? Mm. If you did get into little scrapes and probably players from the, even the 90s, mid-90s before that, you know, the, the great example probably would have been the dentist chair, do you know what I mean, before Euro 96, where before, if that was in the 80s, that would probably never have been reported because what had happened is the players had transcended from being back page news to front page news. And when it was the sports journalists and football writers on the back page, there would be like a, a Masons come Mafia code of conduct where those sports reporters and sports journalists and football wouldn't report what they'd seen off the pitch because they wanted the trust of the players. Do you know what I mean? Some of the journalists could tell you unbelievable stories. You know, they write their own books these days and all about pretty whatever. Yeah, yeah. There's other stuff that what goes on tour stays on tour. Do you know what I mean? I always thought that the worst thing about the dentist chair photo was not actually the alcohol, it was the ripped T-shirts. There was something about the ripped T-shirts where you just go, well, that's like a piece of evidence as to just where this night was going. You, you're in a public place and you look like being savaged by a fucking lion. I mean, you talk about the scraps and stuff like that. I'm going to make another case here for 80s, 90s football was the best, was the violence on the pitch. Now, that sounds a bit unevolved, but I used to like, you know, if you were talking about midfield matchups, people like Paul Davis going up against Glenn Cochran. I mean, and Glenn Cochran actually broke his jaw. So that was, uh, no, Paul Davis broke Glenn Cochran's jaw. Sure. I think. Yeah, exactly. But there, but there were so many of those kind of matchups. There were people like Terry Herlock. There was obviously Vinnie Jones. I was, you know, a Wimbledon fan at that time. It was so weird because you would have played at Plough Lane and we had like fairly timid fans at that time, you know, the kind of people that bought their own Marmite sandwiches and flasks and that kind of stuff. And yet on the pitch... All our violence was on the pitch, really. I mean, what was it like going to Plough Lane at that time? We used to, you know, in the days now, people having COVID jabs, aren't they, and mm. inoculations against flu, whatever. If we were playing Wimbledon on the Saturday at Plough Lane, we'd have a tetanus injection on the Monday because, <laughs> trust me, they would make it as rancid and as repugnant as what they'd block the drains. They'd put like cow dung and horse in the drains. Do you know what I mean? So it stunk when you went in. <laughs> There'd be flies and maggots everywhere in the summer or in the beginning of the season, they'd turn the heating up. Round about January, December time, they'd turn the heating down, so it's freezing cold. The warm-up balls, they weren't warm-up balls, they were yeah. medicine balls. <laughs> you couldn't do anything. <laughs> what it was, it was the crate. They were the self-titled, weren't they? The crazy gang. Like they were the gangsters. Yes, Flash yeah. the bash. You're going to smash it up front. He's going to smash you everywhere. Vinnie Jones is going to, like, cut you in half everywhere. Dennis Wise was the most annoying player ever on a football mm. pitch. You know, like a wasp, like a little busy just wasp that has no <laughs> function but to sting you. He's an excellent player, don't get me wrong, but going there, it was out of your comfort zone. Old-fashioned ground when it pillars in the way. Mm. The pitch was always rubbish. 
basically, the ball was an inconsequence. You're probably too young to remember a film called Rollerball. Basically, it's just about loads of people on an ice skating rink going round and round. You could actually kill the opposition to make sure you get the ball into a certain like hole. And that's why I like playing women was like a play late. It was murderable. It was rollerball. The ball didn't really <laughs> matter. It weren't really of interest. It was like, we got to flipping, make sure we match up to the fights, basically. But do you remember like when those centre midfield pairings, like obviously you can't advocate for violence, but it was one aspect of the entertainment, which obviously they still have in ice hockey with the enforcers, but you would be waiting for, you know, even if it was like David Rokas or, or Steve McMahon or, or people like that, you'd be waiting for that first 50-50 challenge. And it felt like a legitimate part of the game. I mean, I suppose, you know, someone like yourself playing out on the wing, that probably wasn't your preference for that kind of thing and you probably got kicked about a bit. Oh, absolutely, yeah. We, you said there, everybody remembers a tackle in the cup fund, don't they? Vinnie Jones on C. McMahon. Yes. Him telling him in the tunnel, I'm going to rip your throat out. And they weren't hollow words. You knew it was You knew it was coming. Yeah. So, as you said there, especially the centre midfield bit was no holes barred. Everything went. I was surprised they didn't have stepladders in there, do you know what I mean? Or a window frame where you could smash each other red first and see what happens, or barbed wire like coming on. Nobody moaned, nobody whinged. It was just part of the game. Hmm. And... I think that probably the mid-90s, coming up to late-90s, was probably the last time you didn't see outrageous dives with players holding their faces when they've been yeah, touched yeah. or been hit on the ankle. And, but if you showed them that you were hurt, it was weakness. It was a sign of weakness. Because you played, obviously, that Arsenal team could look after themselves, you know, full of characters, a bit like the Wimbledon team. What was it like, you know, because not everyone in a, in a side was like that. You'd have still had your mild-mannered characters. I always remember thinking that John Scales like, was such an incongruous player in that Wimbledon team because one, he always seemed quite middle class. And we also had a player called Clive Goodyear. I don't know if you remember, looked like a Spitfire pilot. And I wonder if you, if you had players like that at Arsenal where you sort of step into this hard-drinking culture. and they, did they, what, what happened to those guys? Were they accepted as being more mild-mannered or did they just keep their heads down? Well, in the old days, it would be you'd have like the drinking squad, which was the cool squad, which was the A-team. Then you'd have the train spotters, the ones we thought were weird. But do you know what I mean? They were right. They were normal. Yeah. They'd do their training, go home to domestic bliss with their you know wives. and family. We were like, come on, can we play? And we'll go out. Do you know what I mean? That was our thing. Yeah. Like Alan Smith, for instance, like who came obviously from Leicester up front, obviously very intelligent and smudge is a top man. And, but any time we'd have probably 16 or 17, 18 of us out on a Tuesday. So the spotters would come out and, you know, have a couple of beers and then they go home where the drinking squad would be like a couple of days. Yeah, yeah. But if any player had a book, right, and you saw them, Pat Nevin springs to mind. It was unbelievable. Yes, yeah, yeah. They were proper weirdos. Do you know what I mean? We we're like, what are you doing reading books? You're doing an open university course or something. What's the matter with you? But it was all good-natured stuff. Do you know what I mean? Because the different characters make different teams. And you, you'd have seen that at Wimbledon with those characters. It, the Wimbledon had well, obviously formed with like Joe Kinnear mm. and Dave Bassett before that. Unbelievable team spirit and bonding. They created, and you would have known at Play Lane, siege mentality. This is us against the world. Do you know what I mean? Nobody likes us and we're going to ruffle the feathers of the establishment. And you mentioned there, every fan loves a brawl. Yeah, yeah. Everybody. Well, there used to be the 22-man brawls, didn't it? And it would always be on the back page of the Mirror or the Sun the following day, like, disgrace at Upton Park. And like, going, is it really a disgrace or do we love it? You know what I mean? I know it sounds like people would call it toxic masculinity now, but just once in a while... I'd just like to see it properly kick off on a football pitch. Not the kind of fannying around, just waving arms around, but 
Just someone throw a punch for fuck's sake. These days, if someone gets a slight push on the shoulder, they fall to the floor. So it's going to be difficult to get a proper fracker and a proper brawl because there'd be eight players rolling around on the floor, wouldn't they, doing the dying flight? That ain't going to happen. <laughs> well, I wonder if it's like the culture's changed whereby, because I was going to mention this to you, you know, whereby, you know, football over the last five years in particular, it takes stances now, doesn't it, on things, you know, whether it's taking the knee or whether it's like rainbow laces. You know, there's been a lot of things and obviously these things in and of themselves are positive, you know, their attempts at social justice and stuff like that. I wonder, do they have the same latitude to behave badly when they're, a lot of them are like figureheads for charities, you know what I mean? They're kind of patrons for various organisations. I wonder if they could sort of, you know, wear the rainbow laces, then be lamping somebody on a Saturday. Yeah, but I think from that side of it, because obviously we're all for diversity and inclusive and for quite rightly in, you know, in football and, you know, getting behind certain causes, right? But that doesn't mean to say that you don't have, when you're at work, you're not going to be the perfect human being. You don't have human emotions, you know what I mean? And football is the point in case because... When you're in it and you're in that maelstrom and passion, you, you're not thinking about anything else. You're thinking about the, the game. You're thinking about exactly what's going on. We had the infamous or famous 21 Ryan Brawl at Old Trafford in 1991, where what had happened was Brian McClare had missed a penalty in 1987-88 at Highbury. And Nigel Winterburn, obviously ex-Wimbledon, like top man. Yeah. He ran about 50 yards to whisper in Brian McClare's ear hole, sort of, bad luck, old chap. I think the wind might have taken that. He ballooned it over the North Bank, right? So it's probably yeah. going round orbit with Harry Kane's bought in a minute. So Brian <laughs> McClare kept that in his head, right? So go forward to the 1991 season. This is our footballers. It's four years later. Yeah, but you know as well, right? Fans remember stuff. Fans have grudges. Footballers have grudges, right? And payback stuff. If you YouTube it, Nigel's in May United half. He overruns it a little bit, goes in with tackle. He's on the floor. So Brian McClare starts booting him. Dennis Aaron starts booting him. And you said about a proper brawl, then all of our lads pile in. They're not having it. So Kung Fu kicks, up everything. So, and what <laughs> happened, it was a 21-man brawl because I was sat on the bench and I was thinking, oh, by the time I get there, it's going to be all finished. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So I was the only one. I was going to say, when because it often was a 21-man brawl and you often used to think, who was the one person that didn't who get involved in the whistle? Was that a person getting a kicking on, on the floor? No, that was me. I was just sitting there thinking, by the time I get there, you know, it's going to be pushing. But it wasn't. It went from the pitch over to the touchline where it carried on for a good 45 seconds to a minute, which is quite a long time. It's for a long ball. enough, yeah, yeah. And then, obviously, the game went on. No one got sent off because Keith Hackett was referee, probably thought, oh, I can't work it out. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know who's done what, who's it who. And just the way that it changed, right? We got docked two points by the FA and May Knight got docked one point. So we won the title that year by losing the game. So we're the only team in top flight history to win a top flight title with a points deduction. So what happened is the FA thought it would hint it down. Again, it was siege mentality, us against the world. So we, we're getting mm. absolutely caned in the papers by the press, disgraced to football, hooligans on the pitch, fine and whatever. George Graham, our manager, was the same thing. Because you had to, if this is Arsenal, we'd be smirched name of Arsenal Football Club, the badge, whatever. Yeah. That was in, in public and in the papers. In private, he called a meeting on the Monday morning and he went, lads, we've got to talk about this brawl, you know, what's going on here. It's not, he said, couldn't be prouder. He said, brilliant. So we're not having people going up north think they can bully us, southern softies. He said, I'll deal with the press and the papers. You had to say one thing in public, you watch your team play. I equate it to if your mate was on the street and he was getting in trouble, you wouldn't run away. 
You'd pile in. You want to see that togetherness. It's the same way that when you see a team that enjoy each other's successes as well, it's quite palpable, isn't it? When you, you know that there's squads that, that every so often a club will have where you go, that squad get on really well together. Like say say the fullback scores a goal and you can see that everyone's buzzing for that guy and stuff. So I guess, yeah, when there's a punch up and everyone gets involved. I mean, Wimbledon got involved in, in so many of those. I don't think we ever actually got a points deduction, but you know, there were times like when we were playing West Ham and, you know, and there's like Julian Dix and stuff. And you just sort of were waiting for it to go off. It, it often seemed to happen more in midweek games. Is there something about a midweek game that makes it more likely? I think uh, under the floodlights, yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, there's a different atmosphere to games when you're under floodlights. You know, at night time, perhaps players' or egos come out, you know, where the darkness... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like exactly, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Where you think, all oh, right, there it is. And there's that your shadowy part of your character like comes to the fore. You know what they could do? Like, I know there's a lot of gambling in football. Mm. Back in the day, why didn't the bookies actually go, right, we'll give you four to one that the fight or the fracas or the punch-up's going to be between the 30th and the 35th minute. You could actually bet on the flipping. Yeah, you could study what's the, the most likely one. I always think when it's really hot as well, like, you know, those first Saturday games in August, there always seems to be like quite a few sendings off on the first day of the season because people are just really hot. Those sendings off are always really funny because they're not like a punch or something. It's just a real random kick at somebody, like someone just boots somebody up the arse in like the last five minutes. I mean, I'm just wondering, you know, with the stances that football has taken, you know, whether there is now an issue, whether or not it's consistent. I, I mean, I'm thinking of Jordan Henderson, right? Jordan Henderson was big with the rainbow laces. I mean, obviously we had, we had England going to Qatar, were taking the knee and stuff. And then when it came to wearing the armband and stuff, they were told that they'd get booked and they were like, all right, <laughs> they, they took it off. But I mean, someone like Jordan Henderson going and playing in Saudi Arabia, is there going to be an issue as players head to retirement and these big money offers come in? Are we going to see more and more players do that? Yeah, well, I think the Jordan Henderson issue, right, is from my point of view, because he was such an outspoken advocate of LGBT and, and quite rightly so, but then because he was so outspoken, and then he decides to go to Saudi Arabia and then he decides to justify it while he's gone, you know, to expand the game, expand the cause. And you're like, mate, just be honest yeah. and say, this is an offer I cannot refuse. I'm being paid multi, multi millions, which is going to set up my family, you know, my sons, my grandsons, my great grandsons for the rest of their lives. That's why I'm going. Then I don't think he would have got as much stick as what he got by trying to justify it and coming out and in, you know with interviews and giving his reasons for doing it so he can fight the cause whilst he's inside your record. You think, mate, you've gone for the money. It's transparent. Yeah, you're paying in front of less than a thousand people as well now. Yeah, I don't think then he would have got criticism, understandably so, because I said before, because he was vocal in his support for those causes, which is brilliant, and we're all in support of those causes. But if he'd have just told the truth and said, look, I cannot refuse this, 90% of people would have understood but when you say, like, cannot refuse, I mean, I get the impression that people that sort of started playing in the Premiership from the 2000s onward, the problem is you think, well, they are wealthy people, right? From the moment you sign that first professional contract from the 2000s onward, like, how much money do you need? That's, in a weird way, if it was a player from your era where we all knew that the money wasn't what it is now, 
and they were offered that because we you know we knew it was it was a different financial situation it, that's where it's harder to take for some of these guys now and then they come out with these weird excuses i can't remember who it was who said about qatar but they said oh well you know i, I met some of the workers from qatar and they all said that they'd been treated well and were really happy I go yeah the hand-picked workers that you were introduced to under the watchful eye of the regime i mean do they need to go and take these latter-day paydays? I mean, they're already multi-multi-millionaires. Yeah, the thing is, Jeff, I, I never critical someone unless I've been in that position myself. Do you know what I mean? I can understand, hey, because even though they're multi-millionaires, say Jordan Henderson is, at that time, he, he was made that offer, and say he was worth 20 million quid, hmm. just for instance, you know, from his football career. Then someone comes in and says, we're going to give you a two-year contract for the reported £770,000 a week, wherever it was. So £35 million a year, right? Mm. And that's over two years, obviously, 70 million quid. I defy anybody who would go, no, you're right. I don't need that 70 million. I'm all right. I've got 20. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is mind-blowing amounts of money. Why do the multi-billionaires keep working all the time? Because... You could easily say, like people like me and you, I'd think if I had half a million, million, I'd be like, I'm retired, mate. I'm done, thanks. These people keep working and working and working because obviously, and if they're being honest, they love their game and they love the sport, but money then becomes a driver as well, you know? So I must admit, I'm not interested. One iota in the Saudi Arabian football, as you said there, half of the leagues are playing in front of six, seven hundred people. And I know they're going to probably take more players because it's a pension payment. In the old days... Players, obviously, the MLS looked like it was going to be the pension payment, didn't it? Yeah. I'll go over there. But now Saudi's in that. Because they haven't got a history, tradition and heritage, they're never going to be able to develop the league the way they think they're going to be able to do it. Because I'm not interested in ageing like footballers playing in front of empty stadiums. I've, I haven't, I don't know about you, I haven't looked at one game. It, look, it looks like they're playing, do you remember in COVID when the stadiums were empty? It looks like that, but it's just carried on forever. Yeah, and I've seen pictures of Ronaldo getting changed in dressing rooms like probably a semi-pro league on a Saturday afternoon where you've got chairs that have been brought from the bar, do you know what I mean, in the the lounge (laughs) have been put in and changed and blah, blah. That's okay. And they can spout whatever they want about why they're there to enhance and expand, you know, the football in that country and obviously bring light to different issues. It's not they're there for the money. And I get it. Well, I mean, that's the thing is, if I was ever to be offered to enhance and expand for 10 million quid comedy in Saudi Arabia, that would be the acid test. I suppose the point is, is that I haven't banged the drum up till this point saying that I'm a great champion of human yeah. rights, I suppose. So I do wonder if going forward, footballers might go hang about. Maybe I'll just dial that down a little a little bit because I don't want to end up looking like a hypocrite. One thing I just want to sort of question before you go is like, obviously recently you've been very brave in talking about alcoholism and, and giving up drink and that sort of stuff. And I know that you've, there's a lot that you've said in the public domain, which is very worthwhile and, and brave of you to say. I wonder how it affects, now when you look back on that time at Arsenal, are you able to sort of like separate it and think, that that was still a laugh or stuff, or has it coloured your view of that? Has what you've gone through recently changed your recollection of that time? No, no, uh, because i got to be perfectly honest, when I was at that time, and obviously there was the big drinking culture, and like obviously looking back, and obviously I'm, I'm more in tune with my own alcohol problems, you know, being alcoholic and mental health issues and, and as I've got older. But back then, that was the first start of probably binge drinking. But... I didn't think it was abnormal because every club was doing it. Do you know what I mean? That was the culture. 
And I was actually teetotal. Before I went to Arsenal, I was teetotal at 21. I wasn't really a drinker. But I looked at, like, Merce was my massive mate, Tony Adams, big mate, Boldy, Noel Cook, whatever. And I just went out of them because it's initiation. I looked at them and I thought, they're having a great time. I quite like that. Do you know what I mean? And then I started drinking more. But my drinking got a lot worse when I finished playing football. And you think that your your behaviour is, is normal because it's the people you're socialising with. Mm. They're doing the same stuff, but it's not. It's totally insane and abnormal. But I don't blame anything on the culture then and Arsenal and the drinking at all because I have to be perfectly honest, I loved that time. Mm. I loved going out. I loved doing it. Do you know what I mean? So I can't and then all of a sudden go, oh, well, if I hadn't have done that, then maybe I wouldn't because I had an alcoholic brain anyway, which is like a disease, and then it just got progressively worse as I've got older and situations that I was creating, carnage and mayhem that was happening in my personal and private life happened more often, that then I can't look back and think, oh, no, I I didn't enjoy that time because I did. I, I, I enjoyed my time and made lifelong friends there, like memories, my boyhood club, Arsenal, who, you know, my Uncle Vic was captain of. So that was, you know, me, like, living the dream. So I see it as probably two sort of different people. And even on the football side, I look at some of the clips sometimes that you get on. I don't do X or anything like that, but someone has sent me something. And I see that as a different person. I look at that and think, wow, is that you? Those rascal tight shorts on. <laughs> Not mean from <laughs> the 80s. That was vanity because I was a size 36 and I was, I was squeezing it. You couldn't be seen to be wearing 36 shorts. But do you know what? Do you know what? If, if you want a bit of a, a throwback, AFC Wimbledon have currently got a player called Joe Lewis who's really flying the flag for the AE skin tight shorts. It's absolutely unnecessary. He does it every game. I mean, it's proper 80s machismo. Right. Do you know what? I'll, I'll just give Joe a little tip. You either put a little bit of Vaseline on your thighs because those shorts can really chafe. I mean, we had nylon shorts back in the day. We were lucky that some people didn't see themselves alight. Do you know what I mean? As they're like <laughs> thighs are rubbing each other. If you look back, even the hardest players, Stuart Pearce, if you look back at Stu, he had the tightest shorts and he was this no-nonsense, when he hard-nosed sort of left back, he used to boot you and not just stare at you and not say a word to you, basically, and then go on 50-yard one-twos with that Nigel Clough. Do you know what I mean? So, so even the hardest players rocked those sort of 1980s Costa del Sol sort of look, couldn't it? Look like really tight. They were like swimming <laughs> trunks, basically. I love how far-ranging this chat has been. We've gone through 80s, 90s football, we've gone through drinking culture and we've ended up with the idea of players setting themselves on on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Perry, it's been, it's been amazing to chat to you. Obviously, people should... Are you on Instagram and stuff like that? Are you on the socials? No, I don't do that, mate. I'm not on any sort of social media stuff. If people want to tell me that they think I was rubbish, whatever, they can tell me to my face. I don't want to read about it. <laughs> I mean, I'm... This is very 80s, 90s. No social media. So just a... Chat, Perry, thanks so much, man. It was really nice to talk about all that stuff and you speak about with such intelligence and humour, man. Thanks very much for coming on What Most People Think. Good luck. Okay, I hope you enjoyed the chat with Perry Groves there. I mean, just so candid and and such a, a funny bloke. It was great to catch up with him. Okay, so that is the end of this week's show. For the Patreons, there'll be the Patreon-only show by the end of this week. And for everybody else, there'll be the main show back next week. And I have just realised that I forgot to do the hype section in the middle and say hello to new Patreons. So let's do that now. We've got Helen Steer. 
Helen Steer just sounds like a formidable head of HR. Oh my God. Oh my God. I had to sit in with Helen Steer earlier on a dismissal. My God, that woman, she is just made of steel. I think she's a reptile. <laughs> Helen Steer, the fear that, and Jamie Shields. Jamie Shields, he could be, there could be the good cop, bad cop. So you both run a company. You know one of those companies that's on an industrial estate that you would never fucking know about what they do unless you worked for them, like a sealed air company or something. Helen Steer, head of HR for Sealed Air Corp, and Jamie Shields is the, the regional business development guy. And if Helen Steer has treated you harshly, a lot of people just go to Jamie. No, just honestly speak to Jamie. No, Jamie's really, really cool. I've just realised that I haven't hyped any of my gigs. I haven't flogged you anything. I haven't whined or begged. So hopefully um, the producer will allow me to do a bit of that right at the end of the show. So coming up next year, there'll be tour shows in 2024 and... (laughs) 